I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And a very good morning to all of you out there in Radio Land. Today is February 16th. We are coming to you live from our Morgan Street studios here in the beautiful downtown Bridgeport neighborhood. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning, Jamie. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? Oh, a little warmer ready. than yesterday. A little warmer than yesterday. We're frozen. Spring training is right around the corner. We are ready for the World Series Chicago White Sox That's to come in. That's what people keep talking about down here. It is. Know. It is. I, I think our guest who is in D.C. might have some feelings about the Washington Nationals. We'll get to him in a second. We are joined today by the author Tope Folloran. He is the author of the new book out from Simon & Schuster. It is called A Particular Kind of Black Man. Tope, are you with us? Yes, I am. How are you doing this morning? I'm quite well. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for taking the time out on this Sunday morning to join us. Thanks for having me. You are very welcome. Apologize for the email uh, mishap this morning, Tope. I could not find oh. your number. Thanks for calling. <laughs> No worries at all. I mean, I, so I thought you had the number, and I was actually trying to put my toddler down for a nap. So oh, okay. multitasking on this side, yeah. Well, the, how, old, how old is the toddler? Three. She's uh, three. Oh, wow. I would love yeah. to, you know, I would love it if somebody put me down for a nap. You know that? I've been getting good practice, but uh, Rosalie, <laughs> I can come over and rock you. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, Mike, if you can come over and rock me to sleep, that would be amazing. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 first of all, I envy you and I don't envy you, Tope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, <laughs> it's a marvelous experience, but it's also, you know, somewhat time consuming, but I would not trade it for the world. Yeah, no, I totally hear you on that. So today we're going to be discussing your, your first novel, uh, A Particular Kind of Black Man. You've also written short stories and stuff. And if you'll forgive me, uh, I'm going to kind of give a sort of uh, potted summary of the book. Please feel free to correct me. Uh, but yeah. this is a book about um, identity. Uh, it's a story of a young man who uh, his family emigrates to America from Nigeria. Uh, I don't think I'm spoiling anything because this happens very early in the book, but his mother uh, suffers from mental illness. Uh, yeah. She eventually leaves the family, and then uh, during the course of the book, uh, that is going to reverberate back and forth in a number of ways. He's going to uh, grow up yeah. to be a young man. He's going to go to college, and we'll get to all that in a moment. But, Tope, I have a number of things I want to talk to you about in the book, particularly the idea of um, dreaming versus reality. Uh, and when yeah. I say that, I, I mean very distinctly uh, because I come out – I was – I grew up in Britain, and I come out of a very strong tradition of where people told you, you know, if your head's in the clouds, you're never going to make anything of yourself. You have to be really grounded yeah. in reality. And I think you make a really interesting point in this book because the main character uh, goes to college, and he basically dreams a life for himself. And there's a key moment in the book where he suddenly realizes that he has to now insert himself into his own story. Yes. And I, I yes. think you're, you're making an interesting point. Again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think you're making a very interesting point about 
uh, immigrants coming to America or people who may not have grown up with the advantages uh, that some of us do, that it is very attractive to dream up your own narrative and and cause a way for yourself to have a new kind of identity. So I wondered if you yeah. could kind of start off there because uh, it, it brings up a whole host of questions for me about <laughs> virtual reality. It brings up a lot of questions for me about identity and meaning. Um, and it also brings up a lot of questions about um, – class structure, you know, because again, yeah. I grew up in Britain. I, I know you've got a Nigerian background. I think you probably yeah. have the same background I do where, you know, that sort of don't, don't dream about things was also a meaning of social control. Absolutely. No, first of all, thank you so much for that question because it's such a perceptive question and it's exactly what I was going for. Um, and the reason I'm excited that you asked that question is that oftentimes when I talk about the book, people kind of... In- begin to focus immediately on the kind of immigration angle. I, I suppose it's because um, of what's happening, you know, from a political perspective here in this country, and people are focused kind of on, on what that means for people like the immigration experience. But um, you're exactly right. That's what I wanted to focus on, the importance of dreaming and, and how it can be a kind of strategy for um, creating a new identity and a new life for yourself. Now, there's obviously this idea about the American dream, which is something that falls apart, at least uh, for uh, Tunde's father, who's Tunde's protagonist, at the outset. And so Tunde kind of decisively turns away from that because he begins to distrust the notion of a dream as something that can carry you into a reality that uh, makes sense for you. Um, but then he does, as you said before, he has a kind of mental break when he goes to college. And because he cares deeply about stories and literature, he begins to kind of envision this future for himself that isn't at the outset real. Um, but he utilizes the skills that he's gained over the course of his life as a reader and writer to create this kind of vision and idea for himself um, that is meaningful and that um, it's a space where he can actually kind of survive and be without worrying about how somebody might, um, you know, sort of try to categorize him or sideline him or marginalize him in some way. And that becomes meaningful. And that is, and I'm really glad as well that you raised the virtual reality point because uh, as it happens, I spent a couple years working at Google um, and I, and I am a science fiction fanatic, so I spend a lot of time, you know, when I was growing up, I often envisioned what it would be like to go on the holodeck and spend, and, and you're exactly right, like, especially in this society, in the UK is the same, and Nigeria in its own way is the same, uh, we're taught that you have to kind of abandon your dreams, jettison those ideas that, you know, you can kind of, there's this idea that if you lose yourself in fantasy that you're losing yourself, right? And part of what I'm trying to argue in the book is that for many people, especially marginalized communities, Um, That kind of virtual space, if you will, that dream space is actually a really viable space to kind of create a sense of self and project yourself into the future. If your entire life and the history of your people is one, especially when they're telling those stories, is one of kind of depression and anxiety and oppression, um, that can weigh on you in a really really, uh, sort of oppressive way in, in the present tense. But if you kind of sit down and say, okay, what kind of future do I want for myself? And you kind of actively try to imagine it, and then you inhabit it, I think that becomes a really kind of interesting and viable possibility for constructing a future, as well as constructing a sense of self. So, again, thank you so much for that question. That's precisely what I was going for in the book. Well, the, the particulars of it in the novel were interesting to me. The, the, the way that idea was handed down from first-generation immigrant to, to second. So Tunde's father yeah. always tells him not to listen to music. Or I'm sorry, it's Tunde, right? 
Tunde. Tunde. Okay, thank you. Tunde, uh, we, yeah. we routinely yeah. slaughter names in this show, yeah. by the yeah. way. Yeah. Topic. Par for the course. <laughs> completely fine. That's yeah. why I asked what your, how to pronounce your name in the email because I we we've sure. had some we've had some real uh, real blunders. Over real here. boners, as we would yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> this is the slaughterhouse city. Yeah. It was, um, but his his father forbids him basically listen to anything but uh, a specific type of Nigerian music and, and gospel music. Yeah. But then they they yeah. catch him and his stepbrother find this record collection that their dad has um yeah he also buys a cowboy hat when he comes to america which yeah, is a was... beautiful detail i love that <laughs> at the start of the book yeah, yeah. well it, you, you you get to see the different internal conflicts between generations you know and it reminded me a lot of the stories i heard about you know m- my ancestors who came over from europe the immigrant jews who yeah who would kind of have that same uh that same conflict about making sure their children walk the straight and narrow making sure that they're assimilated and yeah. uh, and and trying to maintain their roots themselves and assimilate at the same yeah. time. Well, what absolutely the way the novel affected me is that although it is a story about immigration and and also about your Nigerian roots, I uh, what struck me is the identity. Uh, there was a particular st- uh, story in the novel when Tunde has a Michael Jackson shirt on, and he's yeah. and kid tells him it's a dope shirt and he's like is that good or bad i don't know <laughs> and i was uh you know I, I i come from a completely different background i grew up in the suburbs of detroit my parents were very yep. blue collar um and but the identity crisis that he goes through and continues to go through throughout the book i could relate to so well i remember when i was in junior high and i'm sure jamie you and mike not might not remember this tope, but there was an era of parachute pants. Oh, of course, yeah. And, uh-huh. and I remember <laughs> buying parachute MC Hammer, man. Buying parachute pants. Oh, yeah, pants. yeah, yeah. And then, like, a couple of years later, they were out of style, and I wore them to school, and, like, this girl just let me have it, you know, and I was just like, I didn't. <laughs> sure. And it was very, I'm at the time, it was devastating, you know. I Like, I laugh <laughs> yeah. about it now, but, you know, and, and, you know, I became a punk rocker when I was young, and, but I. Yeah. It was amazing to me how. Two people that have completely different stories can relate so well because throughout the book, I'm like, this is this is like in a strange way very similar to how I grew up, although in a totally different environment. Sure, but yeah. this, but situationally, I, I could relate in many ways. And to me, that's just very powerful writing. Yeah, I appreciate that, and and I think part of what I was thinking about as well when I wrote it is, you know, this idea that most of us, when we grow up, if not all of us, are kind of handed an identity card. Our parents say to us this is who you are, this is how to situate yourself in the world, this is how you should respond to certain circumstances, right? And so, um, for generation upon generation, uh, this is something that many kids in this country have experienced. And from it, and it's worked out, you know, more or less for most people. Like, you get this identity card from your parents, you know, not literal, but a kind of sense of how to be in the world, and you kind of adopt that as your own. You might make some amendments and, and change it here and there, but for the most part, you accept it. Um, but what's happening in this century and sort of the latter part of last uh, last century and certainly this century is that we now have an option of kind of constructing our own identities. And so I think for many of us who were in that position where we were trying to kind of step out or experiment and we were immediately kind of, you know, chastised for it, um, I think in many ways uh, now that isn't happening as much as it once did because especially I think the Internet plays a major role in that. You know, you can go online and kind of 
create a profile for yourself that aligns with who you feel like you are internally, even if that doesn't match who you are externally. And people will accept that. And so I think that I was trying to, I think in many ways, you're kind of, we're kind of like identity pioneers, you know, we were kind of striking out and trying to, you know, trying new and interesting things and people kind of, uh, you know, sort of chastise us for that. But I, I think that now m- more people are coming around to the idea that it's it's acceptable to kind of fully express who you are, um, regardless of what your circumstances are or or who you might be um, externally. And I think that's incredibly exciting. And I, I'm fa- thank you for bringing that up because that kind of gets to the heart of of a couple things that I wanted to discuss with you. The the idea that you can create your own identity obviously is is a popular one in literature that's been around since before Shakespeare, yep. but I, I think you've hit on something very modern uh, right now where. You, you have the father coming into the country, as I mentioned, he buys a cowboy hat. That resonated very well with me because when I was growing up in Britain, everyone was very disappointed that I did not sound like Lyndon Johnson because Dallas was the most <laughs> sure. popular program at the time on British television. Yeah, yeah. So they thought that all <laughs> Americans sounded like that. So that, that to me was a very telling detail of how somebody from another country would see the United States. Um, yeah. But I think it's also, you know, in your background, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember you won some literary prizes uh, yeah. th- earlier on in your career. Uh, African Literature Prize, correct. Well, and then I re- yeah. it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, and, you know, we've had a couple other people in the show, and this, this kind of points up the slippery nature of the Internet today. I believe you were criticized by some people for not being African enough to win an African Literary Prize, which at the time yeah. struck me as very unsettling. Um, yeah, you, you know what I mean, because I, I think it again kind of gets to the heart of what you're what you're talking about, because the internet can kind of cut both ways. You know what I mean? I, I think yeah. as you mentioned in the book, it is it is something that does offer the tremendous possibilities of, of freedom, but it has also yeah. become an amplification chamber for criticism yeah. and mob action. And I wondered if you, you know your experience was was to me so. It, I remember at the time and thinking to myself, this can't possibly be right. <laughs> no, I'm serious. You know, I, you know, a, a guy from Nigeria winning an African. Oh, no kidding. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Because it did strike me as so strange. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, so this happened. I won the Kane Prize back in 2013. Um, and in the lead up to it, there was some discussion about like the fact. So I, I think part of the controversy was around the fact that I was born and raised in the U.S. And my parents are from Nigeria. And everybody who had won the Kane Prize up to that point, and I think since then, uh, was was born somewhere in Africa. Uh, there's a clause in the Kane Prize kind of rules and regulations that says that if you are the the child of at least one African, you know, sort of parent, uh, somebody who was born in the continent, that you qualify for the prize. And so I was, I think, the first person to be shortlisted under this uh, part of the, the, the regulations. Um, and people were unsettled by that. Because I'd been to Nigeria, I think at that point, like once when I was very, very young, and I'd spent the rest of my life in the U.S. And I also studied uh, at Oxford in the U.K., so four years in the U.K. Um, but I hadn't spent much time, and I'd spent, I studied for a, a time at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, um, but I hadn't spent much time on the continent. And so uh, there was this kind of, it was, I think, the prize itself kind of had an identity crisis because the question became, okay. Um, this person does qualify for the prize, but does he kind of represent the spirit of what we're trying to do? Uh, and I, you know, kind of argued vociferously that I, I thought I did, and and um, and that the prize was trying to acknowledge its diaspora, the African diaspora, and I thought that was really important. Um, I, you know, can't control where, where I was born, but the story that was shortlisted was a story called Miracle, which was explicitly about a diasporic experience. This 
um, Nigerian-American church in Texas, where people are um, trying to recreate uh, Nigeria in a way. And you have the protagonist of that story is somebody who kind of grew up in a very similar circumstance to me. He feels very connected to Nigeria and drawn to Nigeria, but at the same time, he's, um, you know, he's an American because he was born and raised here. And so, yeah, I did find it unsettling. But, you know, in so many important ways, that experience motivated and inspired the novel because I wanted to kind of really dig into that idea of identity because I think part of what's happening is that you have as I said before, this like really wide and robust diaspora of, of, you know, Nigerians and Ghanaians and Kenyans, all kinds of people who grew up in the States and Europe and, you know, Canada and all over the place. Um, and you have people all over the world who have this experience of being drawn to and simultaneously of another place. They're, they're drawn to one place and simultaneously of this other place, this place where their parents brought them or where they were born. Um, and I think that's a valuable experience to write about. Um, so that's, kind of what the novel's about as well, you know, and in and, and the case of the novel, Tunde, like me, has parents who are from Nigeria. He was born and raised in the U.S., um, and, and he's growing, growing up in a place where there aren't any other people who look like him who are around, so this is a recipe for, you know, a kind of potential, um, you know, really bad situation, right, at least from an identity perspective. Um, and so the novel is about, like, how in the world do you construct a, a holistic and cohesive sense of self? in that kind of environment. And I think it's a contemporary question because, as, we, as we've all said up to this point, this is something that a lot of people are grappling with. I don't mean in any way to kind of connect what Tunde is going through to somebody who, say, might be trans, but I think there is a subtle kind of connection because what's happening is that you grow up in a and you were born in a body that doesn't kind of, it isn't you. You feel the sense that this is not who I am. And I think it's incredible that now we live in an era in which you can sort of step forward and say, well, I have... I have a different sense of identity than what my sex might be, right? And so I think they, uh, and I have all the respect in the world for people who go through that experience. I think that's a kind of permutation, or at least it's, it's, it's another step in this kind of identity journey that, that I try to write about in my book. Well, the other identity that was in crisis was the father as well. I thought he, yeah, you know, he was trying to be a father. He was trying to be a husband. He was trying to, uh, make his way, you know, with the ice cream sales and, and things, you know, these various jobs. He was a mechanic. He moved all over the place. But he ended up being a very tragic, almost Willie Loman, death of the salesman yeah. type I mean, He figure. also had a mechanical sure. engineering degree. Yeah, and he had a, he had yeah. a degree in, uh, in Nigeria and comes over here and, you know, yeah. he's doing all these various odd jobs. And I, I know that happens for a lot of people because yeah. – but I, I – was also very empathetic towards the dad because, you know, he just, it was just like a series of disappointments. And the, mm. the choice to come to Utah was also uh, uh, an interesting one. And, and it made a, uh, it made for an interesting setting for sure. Well, he got a full ride, right? I think he got a full yeah. ride to the college. That's how he chose Utah. Yeah. I mean, it's still weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But did you have an experience like, was that something that was kind of based on your experience? Yeah, you know, there's certainly, I've, uh, I think when I started the book, I wasn't quite, I was, you know, reading a lot of autofiction when I started writing my novel. Um, and I really love autofiction, you know, books by people like you know, Sheila Hetty and Rachel Cusk. And Kanaskard wrote a series of novels that are sort of famously, like, really autobiographical. Oh, oh and we know all like, about Carl Jamie over here. The Cusk uh, trilogy was outlined. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I he's, forget what the book was He's called. got the cover story in the New York Times Magazine today, I will uh, tell you, on Anselm Kiefer. Not, not to... Still? 
Yes, not still going on about that. Still guy? going on. Oh, about I haven't that read that yet. Yeah, it's, it's in okay. today's magazine. You know, I go to the crossword first, but for, forgive yeah. me. And so. then you, <laughs> you migrate over there. I do. I, you migrate <laughs> to the words. Yeah. So. Um, but I was thinking a lot about autofiction when I started, and you know, I kind of noticed that a lot of autofiction um, it seems to it kind of it's localized in a particular class, right? Like it's it's really kind of most of the time when you read an autofiction. A story. It is either kind of upper middle class or even kind of you know rich. It's, it, it seems to kind of encapsulate a particular experience. I wonder what would happen if you overlaid like the strategies and intentions of autofiction on another uh, experience altogether. You know, which is to say, like a poor or a middle class or sort of lower middle class um, immigrant. I mean, how does that look? And and how is that? And I wondered too how people would perceive that. So I was really interested in that. Which is all to say that it does start in a very explicitly autobiographical place. Would you call um, Augie March one of those books? Augie Sorry? March? The Adventures of Augie March? I don't know. I was just trying to think oh, of books yeah, when you were really. describing that yeah. genre. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, Absolutely. Ben, ben Lerner's autofiction really comes from a point of yeah. privilege. Yeah. Uh, you know, come yeah. on, waiting, waiting at the station is not a bad bet. Bad one. I haven't read the newest one, but all right, all right, all right. All right. Yeah, you know. Anyway, Ben Lerner. Ben yeah. Lerner's Ben Lerner's not the guest today. Let's get back to Tope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I think I think that's a great example. Uh, Ten oh four is another. I mean, I again, I admire um, his work, and I think it's really interesting. But it's definitely situated in, in a certain class perspective, and I think that's one reason why a lot of people immediately kind of glom onto it. So when people kind of think about my book, and I had the experience of touring, um, you know, sort of the latter part of last year and into this year a little bit, the first point of engagement is always that, oh, it's an immigrant novel. And I'm always surprised by that, because when I was writing it, I certainly wasn't thinking about it that way, which is why I'm so pleased with your, your first question. I was thinking about sort of structure, and I was thinking about more about autofiction. And like many people, I read Reality Hunger by David Shields and was uh, very kind of interested in a lot of the ideas that were in that book. And so the book, when I started writing, it came from that place. Like, how do I explore some of the themes that seem to be kind of relevant in terms of contemporary fiction? As I, be, as I continue to write, I kind of uh, wanted to kind of... I think it came to me that it would be important to tell a story from a structural perspective as well as plot. And so... From it, I just thought it would be really important to kind of start the novel as a kind of traditional novel, because the novel is about somebody who has, you know, crafted himself into be this perfect idea of what it means to be a black man, just so he's acceptable by society. And so the book itself starts in a place where it's a novel that is conventionally structured so that it's accept- acceptable to society, acceptable to somebody who might go into a bookshop and want to read a story about, I don't know, immigrants coming to America or something. But then when the character recognizes that this is false and he has to kind of go on this journey to figure out who he is, the book itself begins to fall apart in certain ways and begins to go on a journey to find itself. And so as I continue to write the book, that kind of dance, if you will, between structure and plot became really, really important to me. So it's a combination of, you know, sort of my deep abiding interest in autofiction and this idea that structure and plot can go hand to hand. And furthermore, the structure can tell a story as well as a plot can. So... That was really the kind of genesis of the book. You must be a big William Gibson fan. 
Yeah, I can sense this a mile away. Well, speaking of which, you know, we, we've uh, we've been talking with Tope uh, Fullerin for the last twenty minutes, and we actually haven't even uh, played any of his his stuff uh, on this show. As you know, uh, Shannon Van Volt is our reader, and this week, Micaiah McRaven, who is, I believe, the Grammy nominated drummer. I, did he win a Grammy this he year? Did he last, win last year? He won a Grammy last yeah. year. Well, anyway, I think he, he was nominated again this yeah. year. Yeah, Micaiah is great. So Micaiah provided the soundtrack. We're going to hear a segment from Tope Fullerin's a particular kind of black man. Tope, don't go anywhere, right? You're going to hang around? Yes, I'll be here. Okay, so we're going to play this segment, then we're going to come back and we're going to talk more with him right here on I-94. As I look back now, especially with the knowledge of what will come after, the rest of my life set in unflattering relief, I realized that my first five years were the most ordinary of my childhood. We moved frequently, but I can only remember joy. One of my favorite memories from this era for some reason, I'm chasing my brother around our apartment with a red crayon. When I catch him, I pin him against the wall and color each of his teeth red as he screams. My mother shrieks when she sees him. She thinks he's bleeding because of the red wax that's shining from his teeth. She laughs when I tell her that the blood isn't real, and then we all laugh and I allow my brother to color my teeth as well. Then we color mom's teeth. She prefers lime green. Life flowed easily until we moved to Bountiful. We settled there because my father had found a job at an auto repair shop in neighboring Leighton, and Bountiful was one of the few places close by with any affordable housing. My father couldn't find a job as a mechanical engineer anywhere in northern Utah, but he knew a bit about cars, and he figured he would work as a mechanic until something better came along. My mother's illness began to reveal itself to us shortly after we moved into our two-bedroom apartment, a tiny place near the center of town with pale yellow walls and bristly carpet. Mom's voice, once quiet and reassuring, grew loud and fearsome. Her hugs, once warm and comforting, became cold and rigid. She stopped cooking for us. Sometimes my brother and I didn't eat until my father returned from work in the evening. She began to spend more time in her room, away from us. One morning, my brother shook me awake and told me that Dad was crying. I did not believe him. I didn't think that such a thing was possible. We scrambled to the living room and saw Mom standing over Dad, her eyes boiling with rage. My father was naked. His clothes, now nothing more than torn rags, were arrayed haphazardly around the room. He was bleeding from a wound on his thigh and his face was wreathed in a constellation of sweat and tears. My brother and I reached over to him, but mom cursed at us. Get out of here! I was terrified. I looked at dad. His bottom lip was shaking, his teeth were red. Yes, go, he said. What are you waiting for? Go now! We ran. We hugged each other in the corner of our room. Moments later, my father began to scream. Over the course of the next few days, my brother and I witnessed this scene many times, my father cowering on the floor, my mother standing imperiously over him. He took her punishment when she descended into one of her moods, and afterward he would enter our room with a calm smile and tell us that mom wasn't feeling like herself, but that everything would be okay soon. We tried our best to believe him. Before long, we realized the truth. After Dad left for work each morning, my mother locked herself in their room. She rarely interacted with us, but occasionally she opened the door and asked us to come inside. She asked us to stand in the corner of the room near the dresser. She pointed to various places in her room, her closet, Dad's desk, the empty space near the full-length mirror. She asked us if we saw it. See what, Mommy? Don't you see that? What's wrong with you? My brother and I glanced at each other. Is this a game? Mommy, I don't see anything. Can we go now? No, not until you tell me what it is doing there. Tell me why it won't leave. 
sometimes my brother and I lied. We made up stories about what we saw and my mother nodded sagely. Sometimes she disagreed with us and told us to look again. This could have been fun, but the wild look in my mother's eyes unsettled us. Sometimes she told us that we had to leave before they came to get us. Something about this place isn't right, she'd say. Not right at all. Then she'd pull up her covers, switch on the radio, and mutter herself to sleep. And welcome back to I-94. That was a reading from Tope Fullerens, A Particular Kind of Black Man. It's out now from Simon & Schuster. Uh, Tope, I chose that specifically because it kind of shows, um, well, it shows a major plot point of the book that is going to be referenced later on. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the mother's experience and what kind of impact that has in your plot. And then after we come back from the break, we want to dig in a little more again on this kind of idea of schizophrenia, double memory, and science fiction. So I hope you don't go anywhere. Yeah. So, Toby, could you talk a little bit about the segment we just heard? Yeah, absolutely. So I think part of what happens is that um, his father comes across the ocean to America as a dreamer, and then when he gets to America, he kind of sees what his conditions are, what his reality is, and he kind of symbolically puts that, that cowboy hat we were talking about underneath the bed. He stows it away. He says, I have to put my dream away and reckon with what's actually happening with me. Um, his mother, Tunda's mother, refuses to give up the dream. And so one of the things that happens um, right after what you just read is that she, as they're about to leave, what, what happens um, is that somebody comes to take them away, take them to a shelter, um, because she's convinced that she can no longer stay in that house. And before she leaves, she gets reaches under the bed, pulls on the cowboy hat. And for me, that was a, a, kind of symbolizing the fact that she's refusing to give up the dream. And so Tunde is privy to both of these perspectives. His father, who says who seems to be signaling to him that if you want to make it here, you can't be the kind of dreamer, the kind of dreamer that I was, um, and have the kind of dreams that motivated me to come across the ocean and leave my very comfortable place in Nigeria and come here. And he had this other perspective from his mother who's saying, like, no, dreams are still important. And so I, I wanted to kind of uh, to capture both perspectives, and because that's going to be really important for Tunde moving forward. You know, what, what side do I choose, and why do I choose one side or the other? Um, so that, for me, was what I was thinking about as I was writing that passage. Wonderful. Tony, we do have to take a quick break. we got to thank, uh, excuse me, Tope. <laughs> okay, what we, you know, there's so many, you know. So real. It's so real. It's so real. Autofiction, man. So uh, we, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to thank the sponsors. When we come back, we're actually going to come back into another segment. Again, thanks to Shanna Van Volt, thanks to International Anthem and Micaiah McRaven. And then we're going to continue our conversation with Tope Fullerin. He is the author of A Particular Kind of Black Man. It's out now from Simon & Schuster. Tope, don't go anywhere, right? You're not going anywhere? I'll be right here. Beautiful. We're going to come back. We'll be right back after these messages. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM. It is Lumpin' Radio. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpin' Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpinradio.com. And now back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. The most confusing period of my childhood began when my mother left us and returned to Nigeria. She left without any warning. One day, after we returned home from school, Dad told my brother and me that we would not be seeing Mom for a while because she was flying in a big plane back to Lagos, 
I wasn't sure what to say. Part of me was relieved. Heyo and I had seen her only once since the hearing, and I didn't really want to go back to the shelter because I was afraid she would hurt me again. Maybe going back to Nigeria was some kind of punishment, like the time I had to stand in the corner after stealing a cookie from the pantry. The other part of me was devastated. How could she leave without saying goodbye? I looked up at Dad and he smiled, then he shrugged. He kissed my forehead. She will be back soon, he said. There's nothing to worry about. I was seven and my brother was five. I hadn't yet learned that sometimes adults say things just to say things, that sometimes they were just as confused as you. In the days following Mom's departure, my father assumed the guise of a superhero. He kept hunger at bay by working longer hours as a mechanic at various shops across northern Utah. He fought off the forces of sadness by laughing at everything, no matter how bleak or obscene. He vanquished our fears by telling Teo and me that he would always be there for us, no matter what. And he taught us the meaning of kindness by never once uttering a negative word about our mother. For a time we lived this way, my father laughing, dancing, working, teasing, praying. He told us that mom was receiving special care in Nigeria and that she was getting better every day. Teo and I imagined tall, good-looking doctors standing over her with notepads and clipboards, almost like the doctors we'd seen on TV. Unlike the doctors on Dad's favorite show, MASH, our imaginary doctors were black, and they spoke Yoruba to each other as they attended to Mom. As the time passed, though, my brother and I began to notice a change in Dad. He seemed less confident than he'd been before. He maintained his habit of chasing us around our little apartment before leaving for work each morning, but now instead of tickling us at the end, he hugged each of us fiercely and he didn't let go until we tapped him on the shoulder and called his name. He still told us he loved us at least twice a day, but the way he said it sometimes made us feel as if he were saying it for the last time. Sometimes, when we stood by his bedroom door, we heard him praying quietly, insistently, begging God to make Mom right. One night, after Mom had been gone a month or so, my father talked to and me and closed the door without saying a word to us. After a few minutes, we heard him sniffling in the living room. Teo got up and walked to the door and I followed. When we reached the living room, we saw Dad sitting on the couch with his head in his hands. Teo tapped his shoulder and Dad looked up at us. His eyes were red and his mustache was wet. He shook his head slowly. I suddenly felt very queasy. Mom isn't coming back, he said. I looked down at his feet. He'd been wearing the same pair of socks for four days. I knew this because his big toes were sticking through each one. She is just too sick. This country is no good for her. And welcome back to I-94. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sack. Howdy. And you just heard a reading from the new, uh, excuse me, the author, Tope Fullerin's new book, A Particular Kind of Black Man. It is out now from Simon & Schuster. As always, we want to thank our reader, Shannon Van Volt, and we want to thank International Anthem and Makai McRaven, who provided our backing music. Tope, coming right out of that, uh, it raised some interesting questions for us because obviously the mother is suffering from schizophrenia, and that is something you reference uh, back later on in the book. And Mike, I wanted to point out, Tope, that when I was reading the book, when you were having the the dual memories, I actually thought that you were writing about the symptoms of schizophrenia for Tunde because, as we a lot of people do know, that mental illness is often genetic, and I have a lot of it in my family, and it it, uh, um, we all interpret interpret the books a little differently, but that was my understanding (laughs) when I read it. Yeah, well, uh, just to give a little background, Tunde, it's about halfway, maybe a third of the way through the book, he starts to talk about these 
double memories he right. has where he remembers things that didn't happen but that seem absolutely real and then he yeah. he but he still retains the the original quote unquote real memory um so i i, I didn't i didn't see it that way jeremy i i I saw it as kind of the, the a pull on the sci-fi string because the, earlier in the book it talks about Tunde reading uh, Legin and Bradbury and Asimov and Tolkien, and uh, I actually kind of wanted more of that. I, I felt like yeah. I I, I, um, I was in between it being a, like a literal reference to the mother's mental illness and leading me into some strange land that I wasn't sure where it was going to go. Yeah, and I, I had a similar <laughs> experience to Jeremy. You know, I thought instantly of Johnny Mnemonic uh, by, by yeah, William Gibson. Yeah. So I wondered yeah. if, because uh, for people that are not familiar with that, that's the story of a man who's a, a uh, data courier who has a large amount of data downloaded in his head, and it's been made into a truly terrible movie with Keanu, Keanu Reeves, Reeves, if you, if you want to see it, <laughs> without actually reading the far superior book. Uh, but Toby, could you talk a little bit about this? Because obviously, you know, this, this brought up, you know, our reading circle uh, brought up some interesting things. I know you you said earlier you're a science fiction fan, so maybe you could shed some light on this for us. Yeah, you know, I hate to be in a position to like kind of resolve, because I love it when people have different interpretations of, of, you know, work in the same way that I like to have my own interpretations. But I, I will say that um, the, schizo- the genetic schizophrenia, uh, schizophrenia piece is part of it, you know, and I because I think a lot of people who have a relative, especially if it's a parent who has schizophrenia, like your doctor or somebody will generally say that when you're around sort of 19, 20, you know, that's when the symptoms might begin to, you know, manifest. And so I think that's part of it. But uh, there's definitely science fiction in there as well. I mean, I I suppose I might, I'm giving the kind of, you know, least exciting answer, but uh, I was thinking about both. I was thinking as somebody who has read more than my fair share of science fiction, um, I was thinking about that piece of it and the idea of exploring alternate realities. That's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, even when I'm not thinking about fiction or, or whatever else. I think a, a lot about, you know, what that would mean and, and the kind of implications for, you know, those of us who inhabit this reality. So that was one uh, thread of it, if you will. And the other thread was certainly about... And, and so Tunde in that space is somebody who isn't quite sure either. He's not quite sure if he's beginning to kind of, again, if he's becoming a schizophrenic, if that's something that's happening to, happening to him, or or the extent to which he might be on the verge of entering another reality. Um, and so I think that confusion is really important for the book and for that character, because that's, it's that, that, it's that kind of, you know, un, that being unsure, that being in that place that enables him to kind of launch out on his own and say, okay, like, what would it mean to construct my own reality? You know, what would that mean for me? And and is it possible for me to inhabit this reality that I that I construct? That was great what you said about interpretation too. A lot of times the three of us will read a book and we'll have all different interpretations and a lot of authors have said the same thing where it's like, well, it's subject to your yeah. own interpretation. It's a piece of art. Yeah. And a lot of people, lose, yeah. I think a lot of people lose sight of that nowadays that you know, especially, um, oh, and I, and I wanted to go back to, we were talking about class and, 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 uh, auto fiction, you know, a lot of these MFA yeah. programs are rich kids. I'm, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, and I think, yeah. and I think a lot of these kids that are getting published, you know, they don't like to tell you that that's their background. But it, I mean, most people don't yeah. go get an MFA in, in comparative literature or doctorate in comparative literature unless you have somebody backing you. That's that's the reality Absolutely. of it. And uh, absolutely, it's so difficult. I'm so sorry for cutting you off. I'm sorry, but uh, hey, we want to hear <laughs> you, not us. So don't. <laughs> <laughs> It's so difficult to become an artist. You know, it's so very difficult. And, and it's a really expensive enterprise as well, right? Like, part of, I mean, it's, it's, 
it's the kind of thing that doesn't make a sense to a lot of people. You know, if you tell somebody, hey, I want to become an artist, and they say, okay, what does that involve? You say, well, part of it is just kind of walking around, staring up at the sky. Part of it is like going to the museum and taking an art. Part of it is sitting down and watching lots of television. They'll say, okay, you're, you're just a lazy person. Like, go somewhere and get a job, right? So, um, <laughs> but I think that is a kind of, the, the higher you are in terms of class, the more likely it is that somebody might understand that. And, you know, put aside some money for you to pursue that goal. I was in a position where I knew that wasn't going to be the case. And so when I started, when I consciously said to myself, like, I want to become an artist, I want to become a great artist, like, what does that involve? I've been reading a lot of Susan Sontag in, in grad school and her journals uh, in particular. And, and in a lot of her journals, she talks about, um, you know, she wanted to kind of take in everything. She wanted to take in every piece of art she could on this kind of idea that if all of this art was functioning somewhere in her subconscious, that when she began to create art, she could draw consciously or subconsciously on some of the great ideas and images that she had taken in during the course of this time of kind of deep study. And so one of the reasons I moved to D.C. was because I knew um, that I would kind of go through a period where I wanted to kind of engage in deep study, and there are a lot of free museums here. There's a great kind of literary culture here. Um, but And I also knew, too, that I was interested in a lot of the stuff that I was reading, is, again, to return to autofiction or some of the other narrative strategies that I'd come across. But I also recognized that at least I didn't see a lot of those strategies being represented or, or written about or, or thought about with respect to fiction that wasn't about the kind of upper-middle-class experience, right? So even when my book is evaluated, and I'm incredibly happy with a lot of the you know, sort of attention the book has received, but it's still, like, again, um, seen... I think what happens, and I might say something vaguely controversial here, but I think sometimes with uh, writers of color, there's this kind of idea that they're writing about history or they're writing about a particular subject. They're writing about, you know, something that uh, the readership wants to know. But I don't think a lot of times that people might go to those books for literary innovation, right? Oftentimes, if you're thinking about literary innovation, you're thinking about the writer from Brooklyn... Um, who went to the MFA program. And so I was interested in that kind of trajectory as, as an artist myself. Well, I think there's expectations from writers of color for, like, certain political demographics. Yes. Like, they're, yep. like, they're yep. telling me a story about oppression, and it's not necessarily the case. Yes. Yeah, is, well, that, it, is that frustrating yeah. as well for you, Topi? I mean, it, it would strike me as frustrating. <clears throat> yeah, it's deeply frustrating, you know, because, you know, I'm in a weird position where, um, yeah, I have received some, you know, good critical attention. I'm really happy about that. But a lot of the critical attention has been about, like, this novel as an immigrant novel. And, uh, and you know, as somebody who, you know, reads a lot of science fiction, cares a lot about, you know, sort of current trends in literature, has read a lot of, you know, literature going back, even, you know, thinking about modernist literature in the early 20th century and some of the things those writers are trying to do. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm keen to be a part of this conversation about what, where fiction can go and specifically where the novel can go in the 21st century. What does it mean that, you know, like we're beginning to, a virtual reality is just around the corner, augmented reality perhaps is already here. Um, how does this, and there's so many, you know, options on, on Netflix and, you know, streaming, and there's so many stories. Like what place can the novel carve out for itself, like, you know, here and now, and moving forward? That's an, a question that I think about all the time. And I wrote this book in some ways to kind of address that question, um, but, you know, I, I recognize a lot of people will open the book, see my face on the cover, I mean, on the on the back, see, you know, my, my name, and assume automatically that, okay, this is a story about immigrants, and so let me slot it into that category. Um, and so I think part of what you do as well is that you kind of write for the future. You know, I recognize that even if 
here in 2020, people aren't necessarily interested in hearing my perspective on what you know, the novel of the 21st century needs to look like. Perhaps at some point later on, you know, somebody will say, oh, here's the novel that was interested in some of these questions, and here, here's how this novel took on those questions. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because there's a, I believe Ta-Nehisi Coates started yeah. writing comic books because of his yeah. frustrations with that. He wanted to yeah. uh, kind of, I, I'm trying to think of the way he put it, but I, I think it was he wanted to kind of conceal his identity and write Captain America and have his work on Captain America be taken as just kind of, this is a guy writing Captain America as opposed to sure. something else, you know what I mean? Uh, all yeah. the kind of baggage yeah. that he said he didn't necessarily feel he had put on it, but that other people had put on yeah. him. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, it's interesting that his novel, his novel is his, the novel that he just published a few months ago, I think in many ways kind of returns to that tradition of like writing. I was talking a, a few weeks ago with a couple of my uh, fellow writers of color. We were talking about the trajectory of the kind of successful, you know, a uh, writer of color. And, and one is that you, you um, at some point you have to write like a big historical novel if you're an African-American, it's about like slavery or Jim Crow or something, because that's the novel, because that's kind of what you're expected to write. Um, and I'm not saying at all that Tanahashi wrote the book he did because of that reason, but I, I do think it's interesting that he wrote that book because it's, it's you know, it, I think it kind of fits the brand of what he's kind of expected to write. Um, and a lot of the stuff that he writes, you know, his comic book writing doesn't fit that. And so I think it's really interesting that he did try to find that pathway out of that. Um, but I think it's incumbent, too, on reviewers and critics and even some readers to kind of provide this kind of alternate space, if you will, for writers of color who are, you know, maybe want to write about race, but maybe want to write about other things as well, that, that it's important to kind of hear our perspectives on things besides, you know, what we're kind of expected to write about. I had this really funny experience where when I was beginning to promote the book, um, somebody reached out to me and said, hey, I, I think you should write an op-ed piece about immigration. And I said, I'm happy to do that, but, you know, my book isn't really about that. You know, it would have been interesting if somebody said to me, hey, write a piece about, like, you know, auto fiction or write a piece about, um, you know, something else. I would have been really keen to do that. But I think part of it is, you know, again, it's about marketing the book and saying, okay, here's another, you know, sort of immigrant perspective. And Well, it's always Trump the easy sell, you know. It's like, yeah, exactly. Well, I think, too, yeah. that it's, it's almost like I said earlier, it's like an expectation. You're a right of color. It's going to be about this, this, or yeah. this. And that's... Yeah, and th these expectations are placed in, in this. It's 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 very political, in, in some yeah. ways, and it's it's a sign of the times. But what I'm happy about is that we we are talking about this on the break. That not one of us looked at this as an immigration novel. I yeah, I'm so I, pleased about that. <laughs> as as I said, I related to the character. I mean, here's a Nigerian yeah. kid in Utah, and like I said, you know, I'm not from either of those places and I could totally relate yeah. all the way through college awkward breakups the relationships you know being out of place at school I mean to me it was more like H.G. Wells Invisible Man or Kafka or even Holden Caulfield for that matter I'm not saying they're similar in yeah. the writing or anything but it's like that with a little bit of a twist I mean it's it's, it's outsiders that's what I thought of. I, I, I was actually yeah I've been surprised every time Jamie mentioned uh, Simon and Schuster that that they uh they would pick it up, not because of the quality, but because it's unconventional. No. It's unconventional yeah. in its so structure. So right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I assumed that I would not get a big five publisher. I really did. I mean, and, that's um, awesome. Just <laughs> was was there? Is there a story uh, I, behind it? 
Absolutely. Yeah, my editor is a guy named Ira Silverberg. Um, he's uh, an absolute legend and like, um, I think in New York publishing circles, and he's, he's known for um, kind of reaching out to, uh, he's kind of one of these people who's interested in avant-garde voices and voices that are kind of outside the norm. Um, and so he's kind of been involved with a number of projects that don't, he uh, published a book, this book called Asymmetry, that was uh, written by Lisa Halliday that received a lot of attention a couple of years ago. I remember um, that. He I edited read that it. book. Yeah. 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 And it, th- that book also has, like, I mean, I, a lot of people focused on the fact that the protagonist resembled the author. There was an autofictional component, and the protagonist has uh, a relationship with a, a writer who's based on Philip Roth. And I think that kind of soaked up a lot of the oxygen. But the book is really unconventional and, and interesting. It has an interesting structure. And so um, I really like that book. And Ira reached, you know, I was, trying to sell the novel. And I, I had a conversation with him, and he said, I get exactly what you're trying to do. And he said a lot of the things that I was hoping somebody would say when I was trying to sell the novel. He's like, you know, this is about identity construction. And he said, I like the kind of science fiction. And when he said that, I said, we have to work together. Because, you know, again, a lot of people were reading it as, you know, I had one really bad experience where somebody said to me, like, this novel, what you need to do with this novel is kind of focus on the father character. The, the current protagonist doesn't make any sense. This needs to be like about him and his journey to America Blip. and how he tries to make it in America. <laughs> and so they wanted the immigration novel. Yeah. And Ira, you know, said, no, this is, you know, he said, this is where it needs to be. And um, like all editors do, he had some suggestions, um, which were great. And I took a couple of them on board. But he kind of, he liked the spirit of the novel. And so that was really, really important to me. You know, we only have a few minutes left and I, w- I wanted to get this in. We were talking about... Uh critics' responsibilities and readers' responsibilities. Uh, yeah. Jeremy just lent uh, or recommended this book of essays by Daryl Pinckney. I think it just came out. It's called Busted yeah. in New York. And there's one in there called How I Got Over, um, and it's about his experience as an expatriate in uh, in Berlin. And really, the, yeah. whole, the whole essay could be, like, inserted as a leaflet in your novel. There, there are huh. a lot of relations he has to uh, to the main character, but there's talking about identity. He uh, there's this one line in there. He says, "Given the political climate of the time, the atmosphere of conspiracy that stretched from the Nixon White House to the Black Panther headquarters in Oakland, love of country and love of tribe represented extremes. Duality of soul was unacceptable, as if only scorched ground lay between the two forts of national and racial identity." And you know, we were talking earlier about uh, this ability we have with the internet and social media, um, and our phones to 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 create whatever we want. But when you get out there, at least to me, it does it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't yeah. feel yeah. like you could make yourself anything you want to be. It ve- feels very much yeah. like you you're either born on a side based on what you look like or where you were born or you you vehemently choose a side but it doesn't feel like you can be that multifaceted yeah i think you're exactly right um and i'm a big fan of daryl's work and i haven't read that particular essay but yeah i think he's a really that was from 94 that was pre yeah well, of course, oh, he's been pretty... a long, yeah. But he's been a long time contributor to the New York Review of Books for people who don't New know. New York Review of Books, yeah. yeah. And he wrote a, a very is it called Hello Hello Deutschland? Black About, Deutschland. Sorry, and being a, a young gay man in Berlin. So uh, Daryl's yeah. you know obviously a very well he's a Guggenheim fellow, I believe. Too, yeah, he's so. a monster writer. He's yeah, a monster. Um, yeah. We're, we're running out of time here, Tope, and I do want to get we, we like to give people the last word, so I do have a final reading from you. But before we leave, you know, we've been talking about expectations. We've been talking about uh, dreaming. We've been talking about creating yourself. 
a couple of the other writers that came up to me when reading this book were, were Fran Ross, who wrote the great comic novel Oreo, and Paul Beatty, mm. um, who wrote, uh, yeah. you know, I'm not such a fan of his newest one, but his book, The White Boy Shuffle. Yeah. That book is awesome. To me, yeah. was one of the, the, the great <laughs> classic comic novels. And your, yours is not a comedy, yeah. but I think when yeah. you were talking about defying expectations and playing with structure and doing different things, both Fran Ross's book and, and Paul Beatty's first novel really showed that. And I wondered, first of all, I wondered if just quickly if you were familiar with them and your reaction to that. I wanted to throw in Percival Everett, too. Oh, he's, yes, of course. Like African- oh, yes. These yes. are, yeah, they, they're all in my sort of personal Mount Rushmore. I, I love all of them. Um, I think they're all important. And and I agree with, shout out to Paul Beatty. Um, I didn't love the second book the way I loved the first one. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, White Boy Shuffle is incredible. And I think for me, it's like, as I'm reading, it's, it, it's, it's heartening to see people who are creating new space for themselves. Yeah. Like, and, and that's what I wanted to do with my book. I wanted to create new space for myself and writers who are, who might resemble me, who are interested in doing the same kind of departing from the beaten path a little bit and saying, okay, like here's who I am as an individual at this point in time. And here's a book that represents that or it tries to represent that. So, Thank yeah, you for doing that. Important to me. Heck yeah. 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 Look awesome. forward to more. We look forward to more. At Tope, first of all, thank you so much for spending an yes, hour with us you. on a Sunday when you probably have better Absolutely. things to do. We really appreciate it. Uh, a Particular Kind of Black Man is out now from Simon & Schuster. Uh, Tope, I don't believe you have a website, but I know Simon & Schuster does. Information is there. I do. It's just topefalaren.com. Oh. There, there you go. we go. All right. Topefalaren.com. Yeah. Topefalaren.com. T-O-P-E. So there you go. F-O-L-A-I-R-N. A-R-I. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, you can get this book at your local library, too, which we love to support because Jeremy, of course, is a working librarian here in Chicago. Um, we are going to say goodbye. Tope, thanks so much for being here. Thank We're going to leave him thanks, with a Tope. final clip from his book. This is called From a Particular Kind of Black Man. It's read by Shannon Van Volt, and we will see you next week right here on I-94. She wants to hold my hand in public, even though I'd rather not even though I don't really like doing it, even though there are so many other ways we can show each other love. I like to show her how much I care about her by messing with her, hiding her soap, tapping her nose when she's trying to concentrate, tickling her when she's trying to fall asleep, that sort of thing. She's learned my language, and so now she plays tricks on me as well. She hides my stuff, teases me as I stomp around my room trying to find my keys, my backpack, my books, her laughter welling up inside me until it comes spilling out of my own mouth. That sort of thing. Why isn't this enough? These private expressions of affection. Why must everyone know what's happening between us? Why must we constantly advertise how we feel about each other? Our love is green and young and its first tendrils tentatively poking up into the air. Maybe too much sun isn't such a good thing now. She wants to hold my hand in public even though we constantly hold hands when we're in her room or mine. I don't think I've ever known anyone else's hands so well. Each groove, each nook of it could as well be my own. Our hands fit so perfectly together, like she's a puzzle and I'm the missing piece. She wants to hold my hand in public, even though everyone reacts the same way when they see us. They look at our hands and then they look at us, they peer at us. It's almost like they're trying to imagine if we'll be holding hands this time next week or next year. Will they last, their eyes say. Also, do they fit? Also, how did he manage to snag her? We're outside holding hands. I can feel all those eyes boring into me, questioning me, undermining me, and she just walks along like everything is beautiful in the world. And this makes me so angry that sometimes it's hard for me to breathe. She wants to hold my hand in public, even though we've only been dating for like, what, two months? Shouldn't we at least hit the six month mark before all the gratuitous PDA? Aren't we jinxing ourselves? What's wrong with walking close to each other? 
maybe even her slipping her arm around mine every now and then. Why the permanence, the inescapability of hand-holding? She wants to hold my hand in public, even though there are all these other fine women out here. I see them all the time when we're out, and it seems like more of them appear when we're holding hands. It's like the moment we start holding hands, some alarm somewhere goes off, and all the finest women at this college, in this city, in this state, come out to watch us. They tease me with their eyes. They smile flirtatious, untouchable smiles. They wear tight, transparent clothes. They wink at me and show me what I could have if I would just let go of her. is Lumpin' Radio's Books and Literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Tope Falloran, the author of A Particular Kind of Black Man, out now from Simon & Schuster. This episode originally aired on February 16th, 2020. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.